So as we get started here today, I have a quick question for you all. And that is, can you guys remember the last time, or maybe the first time, or a time, when someone did something for you that you really didn't deserve? Uh, maybe you were treating them really poorly, and they decided to treat you with kindness instead of treating you poorly in, re in return. Or maybe, maybe someone uh, gave you a gift, and it wasn't your birthday, and it wasn't Christmas, and it wasn't you know, a different holiday, and it was just to say, hey, I appreciate you. Or maybe someone took time out of their day to send you an encouraging text. And uh, it, I don't know, and you just, you didn't deserve it necessarily, but it felt good. Maybe uh, you got into like a little fender bender or something and the other person didn't make you pay for, for the damages. I don't know. Can you, can you remember a time that that happened? I, I remember one time, uh, the, 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 the moment that comes to mind for me is three years ago when Taylor and I got married. Uh, this church mobilized on our behalf and people came to our aid and they uh, helped serve at our reception. They helped us set up and tear down. It was amazing. I remember being there and feeling so insanely cared for and loved. Taylor and I didn't deserve that. We, there's no way we could pay it back. It was just generous. It was just love. And it was a huge blessing to, to Taylor and I. You know, it's a radical kind of love. It's a special kind of love that, that compels people to do this kind of thing. It's the kind of love that gets out of bed at 3 a.m. when your friend who works the night shift, uh, his car broke down on the side of the road, and you get up and go help him or her. It's the kind of love that will take money that was intended to be spent on you and, and spends it on somebody else. It's the kind of love that puts our dreams and our desires on hold for a time in, in order to care for and love others. It's the kind of love that gives someone a kidney. It's the kind of love that doesn't care if it's fair, because it's not about whether or not it's fair. It's the kind of love that actually takes action the kind of love that often comes at our own expense. It's radical. Giving some someone everything you have, even if it means losing your comforts or, or wants. It's the kind of love that we see on display here in Ruth chapter 3. So we're going to be in the book of Ruth uh, today again. And uh, if, in case you missed the first couple of weeks, here's kind of where we are so far. So in Ruth chapter 1, we met this guy named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malhon and Kelon. And uh, they live in a place called Bethlehem, probably rings some bells, uh, in, a, in a region called Jerusalem, in a country called Israel. And there's a famine in that land. And so they decide to pack everything up and move to a foreign land called Moab. Long story short, they're in Moab. Elimelech dies, and uh, so do his two sons, leaving Naomi and two of her daughters-in-law as widows in this foreign land. Naomi thinks to herself, you know what? The famine is over. I should just go back home. So she packs up her stuff, gets to the road, and then looks to her daughters-in-law and says, hey, you guys should go back to your, your mother's homes. You should go get husbands and your own people with your own gods because, listen, I can't provide any more husbands for you. Even if I got pregnant right here, right now, today, it would not be an option. So uh, one of them ditches a woman named Orpah. The other one sticks around with her, her name was Ruth. 
Now, Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem, and in chapter 1, it ends with Naomi renaming herself. She says, God has turned his face from me. I'm forgotten. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because I'm bitter. Ruth chapter 2 starts in a very predictable way. When they return to Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi are essentially sentenced to a life of poverty and homelessness and hunger. And so they're like, in the beginning of Ruth chapter 2, we're hungry. Go figure. So they decide to go and glean wheat. Back in the day, it was the tradition of wealthy landowners to only cut and harvest whatever thing they were harvesting one time. They'd only go through their field one time. And whatever was left over, because it wasn't a perfect process, whatever was left over was left for the poor and impoverished in the community to come and glean. And so Ruth goes and she begins to glean harvest, uh, glean from the harvest in, the, land, in uh, the field of a man named Boaz. And long story short, Boaz finds out that Ruth is doing some extraordinary things for Naomi, and he goes out of his way to bless her. He feeds her a meal, he gives her water, he even gives her protection because it wasn't a very, it wasn't a very safe thing to go as a single woman and glean barley. Come to find out that uh, Ruth ends up collecting two weeks worth of food in a single day, and she goes back home, and the chapter two ends with Ruth and Naomi celebrating this amazing, bountiful harvest that they've got, and Naomi explaining to Ruth that Boaz is someone called a kinsman redeemer for their family. Now, kinsman redeemer is not really a concept that we're all too familiar with in our modern day, but, and by the way, I'm not saying that this, this is the best thing, but it is their system. Back in the day, if a woman, because a woman's value was established based upon her connections to males, so whether or not it was her husband or her sons, if anything happened that removed that relationship, like the husband or the sons or both of them died, what they would need to do is they would need to have a new heir. But the problem was that who would be the father of that heir, especially if the, the husband died. So the culture came up with a way to, to help these women Essentially, a close friend of the man who died would marry the widow and would give her a baby, and uh, hopefully it would be a male baby, and essentially that male baby would be the inheritor of that dead father's stuff. And that's how they protected women in their culture, which is kind of cool, kind of odd for us probably, but definitely kind of cool that they protected them. Anyway, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. Ruth chapter 3 begins with uh, Naomi going to Ruth and saying, hey, listen, I have an idea. I think it's time for you to get married. And uh, so you should take a shower and you should change your clothes and you should anoint yourself with oil. And uh, some scholars think that this whole change of clothes thing was because Ruth was probably wearing like the type of clothes that a widow would wear, kind of like in our culture where a widow or a widower might wear black all the time um, for a time, a period of grieving. Ruth was probably in something similar. And so uh, Naomi's saying, hey, change your clothes from those grieving clothes to clothes that convey to the culture around you that you are available to be married. And then Ruth goes to this place called the threshing floor where Boaz is at. And the threshing floor is just a fancy place where they would throw grain up in the air and the, the heavy wheat, the edible part of the, the, the plant would fall while the rest of it blew away into the wind. And this is where Boaz was. And Ruth 
The Bible talks about how Ruth sits there and watches him for a while. She watches as he eats and drinks dinner. And then as he lays down, and the Bible's explicit that she takes note of where he lays down, which makes sense because there's no like cell phone cameras or anything. So he needs to be able to find where she's at. Anyway, she goes and uh, he, he lays down. A little time passes. Then she goes and lays down at his feet. And the Bible says that she uncovered his feet. Now that's kind of strange, right? Like we honestly... Biblical interpreters are not sure. If you read three different commentaries, you would get probably three different answers on what's going on here. So uh, some people think that it's a cultural thing. Like this is a way that a woman would propose to a man. Some people think that it was like a cultic practice. Some people think that it was like a uh, double entendre. There's children present, I'm sorry. You guys understand what I'm saying though, right? Uh, some, like, some people think it took on all kinds of nuances. My personal thought is that the simplest answer is probably the best answer. I think that Ruth just wanted Boaz to know that she was there. I think that when you uncover somebody's feet, it's like, oh, my toes are cold. I don't know. It, it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but she uncovers his feet. She lays down in the middle of the night. He's startled awake. And in, in uh, verse 9, here's what it says. Who are you? Boaz asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you as you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of your family, uh, another word for kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world did we just read? Because it is a little bit complex. Uh, Essentially, what we just read is Ruth proposing to Boaz. Hey, will you stretch the corner of your garment over me? Will you redeem Naomi and I? And Boaz's response, yeah, I'll redeem you. Of course. In fact, I think that the fact that you're willing to be the vessel of this redemption is amazing. This kindness is even greater than the first kindness. The first kindness of you and gather, coming and gathering barley in my field for, on behalf of Naomi. This, this kindness right here is even more significant than that. The fact that you would marry me, an old man, even though there's younger men, even rich younger men, you care about Naomi. You care to redeem her family. But there is one guy who's technically a closer relative So I got to make sure that he's okay with it. But if he's not going to redeem your family, I'll redeem your family. And so she lays there uh, at his feet until morning. And the Bible says that they wake up before the sun's up, before anybody can really see what's going on, presumably because it was not a good idea to have a woman at the threshing floor. And the Bible gives us the connotation that she takes her shirt and goes like this. And then he puts some barley in it, which is kind of an interesting detail. And then she goes home. And she and Naomi celebrate that they are going to be redeemed. Naomi says, Boaz is not going to let the sun go down on this. He's a good man. He, he will not rest until this is taken care of. And that's how Ruth chapter 3 ends. 
So there's a lot going on in Ruth chapter 3. We've got a marriage proposal. We've got Boaz complimenting. And we've got this funky, like, pull the blanket off somebody's feet. I mean, there's a lot going on. And obviously, Ruth and Boaz are like the main characters in Ruth chapter 3. But I am most fascinated with the story that's going on behind the story, the story of Naomi. This chapter starts with Naomi essentially saying to Ruth, listen, I think you should go and get married. What a, could you imagine going to your like widowed daughter-in-law and say, hey, I think it's time for you to get married so that we can have food. Like, it's kind of like, like that is like a, almost a presumptuous thing to do. But Ruth gets on the bandwagon. What becomes really clear here in chapter three is that Ruth didn't have to do any of this. She could have ditched way back in chapter one. She could have said, I'm not going to go glean from that field because it's dangerous. Or she could have said, you know what? No, he's an old man. I don't want to marry some old man. But she didn't. She did all of those things. It makes me wonder why. Why would she do those things? And I think that the only logical answer is because she had a radical care and love for Naomi. And Boaz is just the same way. In the whole kinsman-redeemer relationship, sometimes it went really badly, and the, the product of the redemption, that kid would try and get the inheritance of the, the kids who already existed from the, the guy who became the redeemer. So it was risky for Boaz, but he did it anyway because he loved Naomi. He cared for her. Could you imagine what it would be like to be Naomi, you show up in Bethlehem with nothing. Basically the clothes on your back. Whatever you could carry from Moab. And a widow daughter-in-law. So you have nothing. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you would Im I would imagine that it would feel hopeless. Totally, completely dark and hopeless like stuck between a rock and a hard place. When I talk about them being homeless and starving, like it's very likely that they didn't have a place, a roof over their head unless someone was really generous. And they didn't have food in their belly unless someone was really generous. And they didn't have any security unless someone was really generous. Could you imagine the hopelessness bearing down on you? I would imagine if we were in her shoes, we would say, my life is over. But then this daughter-in-law of yours says, I'll go, go collect grain in a, in a, in a field and, and we'll eat. And then this guy is super generous and you think to yourself, well, maybe there's hope. Maybe there's hope. So, it's, I don't know, it's amazing. I can imagine that after Boaz and Ruth say yes to serving Naomi, Naomi just feels extraordinarily blessed. So extraordinarily loved and cared for. Last year, around this time, I was headed for one of the worst health crises in my life to date. Uh, I didn't know it was happening, but essentially, uh, I wasn't treating my body right, wasn't eating the right nutrition, wasn't resting, I was stressed out all the time, it was not a good situation, and Taylor and I go to my in-laws for Christmas, and things hit the fan, and everything starts going downhill. I wake up one morning at 3 a.m., and it feels like I have food poisoning. 
but it's not food poisoning because it doesn't go away. Ten days in a row, I wake up and I'm not able to eat. I'm barely able to drink. It's horrible. About day four, I start getting this horrible stomach pain that like the type of pain that will like make you keel over and cry a little bit, like that kind of stomach pain. And I'm like panicking because I have no idea what's going on. I'm feeling hopeless. Uh, our insurance is awful, like $7,000 deductible. And I'm like, we don't have $7,000 to spend on this. Like, what are we going to do? I don't want to put my family in debt if it's not something significant, blah, 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 blah. So I'm panicking in my mind. There's all this kind of, I messed up relationally with T Taylor and there's all this relational drama going on between us and it's just a really bad time. I remember feeling so hopeless. And I, uh, I get home from Wisconsin and, and people start to mobilize on my behalf. The body of Christ starts to, to care and love for me. My, my parents start to uh, like say, hey, we'll, we'll pay for you to go to this particular doctor. And, and Taylor's parents are like, hey, we'll help you to pay to go to this particular doctor. And I start to feel a little bit better. Good enough to go on this trip to Africa. So I go on this trip to Africa and... Uh, That's what I, I said. <laughs> yeah. So I go and I get sick a couple of times, which is really quite normal. And then I come home and my body crashes again. And like food is going in and coming out looking exactly the same way, like totally undigested. And I am like freaking out. By this time, I've lost like 20 pounds. My face is like concave and uh, not, not good. And I remember just feeling so hopeless thinking to myself, this is just gonna be my lot in life. I'm gonna like feel miserable for the rest of my days and then I'm going to die. <laughs> and that's just what it's going to be. Uh, no, but I, like, I know it's funny, but I was like so hopeless. And then I remember uh, I was sharing this with a couple of uh, family friends and they said, hey, can we help you? We wanna help you. We have this doctor friend who's willing to do work pro bono and and he, hey by the way here's 200 bucks if he prescribes medicine for you we want to pay for the first 200 dollars of it guys i don't cry but man i was like on the edge of like i don't cry often let's say that uh, i was on the edge of tears overwhelmed by this amazing love it just came at the right moment like i needed somebody to care about me and they did and it was like, huh. and I remember just feeling like God loved me so much in that moment, so much. I imagine that's how Naomi felt. At the end of chapter one, Naomi says, God forgot me. I'm nobody. I have nothing. By the end of chapter three, these two, Ruth and Boaz, have radically loved her in a way, just radically loved her. I bet she feels so loved and so cared for. I imagine she didn't feel so invisible anymore. Not so forgotten, not so left behind. I imagine she felt remembered. Have you ever had an experience like that? where the body of Christ mobilizes on your behalf, where they come to your aid? Do you ever see God in it? Jesus gave us the example to follow. 
when he did his earthly ministry, he showed us that radical love is not radical, it's the norm, it's the, it's the everyday. This is what we do as his followers. He showed us by example that we were supposed to care for those in need, that we're supposed to care for the hungry and the thirsty, the naked, the impoverished, the foreigner, the refugee, the sick, and the imprisoned. He didn't just tell us to do it, he, he showed us by doing it, and ultimately he showed us how to love these people to the nth degree by giving himself up for us on the cross. When we choose to love others like Jesus loves us, the Bible talks about how it takes an invisible God and makes him visible because God is love. And so when we love like God loved us, we take a God that we cannot see and make him visible to the world around us. It's good. Naomi thought that God had forgotten her. He hadn't. The proof is right here in the pages of Ruth. God wasn't far off. He hadn't forgotten her. He was near. He was up close. God showed his love for Naomi through Ruth and Boaz. He orchestrated this situation to, to bring good out of it. Two weeks ago, as we walked through Ruth chapter 1, we discovered that Naomi was this forgotten woman, but our encouragement that week was that God would bring it to good. And here in chapter 3, we're seeing God bring it to good. He is starting it. There's, the rumblings of it are happening. There's hope at the end of the tunnel. Ruth, or Ruth and Naomi both have access to this idea that, hey, we might have something close to normal by the end of Ruth chapter 3. It's happening. I mention it as an encouragement. Whatever situation we may be in, or you might find yourself in today, I invite you to look and see God, in the midst of it, how God brings it to good. Keep praying, keep hoping, keep waiting. Know that God has promised to bring this thing to good. But this week, in addition to just being people who remember that God has promised, that remember his promises, that receive his promises, I want to invite us this week to be a group of people who are bearers of his promises to other people. That we would be Ruth's and Boaz's. That we would be the type of people who are willing to radically love those around us. You never know what your simple act of kindness can do for somebody. It might change everything for them. You never know when it's the person who uh, is in front of you or behind you in the Starbucks line and you buy their drink or whatever, and like you never know if they were about to kill themselves that night because nobody sees them. I, I know that's an extreme example, but you never know. You never know. As followers of Jesus, this kind of love is supposed to characterize us. Jesus says, and they will know you by the way that you love one another. It's what sets us apart. In the situations that you're going to be facing this week, do you see opportunities to love the people around you? To love people like Ruth and Boaz loved Naomi? To love people like Jesus loved us? It could be something typical. It could be something extraordinary. Whatever it may be, 
Do you see the opportunity? Maybe God is asking you to forgive somebody who wronged you in a serious way. It's time. Maybe God is leading you to give generously to somebody or some organization. Perhaps God is leading you to invite someone over for a meal. Maybe the lonely single person next door or, or some friend of yours, whoever. Perhaps God is leading you to reach out to somebody who you cut off relationship with a long time ago. Maybe he's leading you to send an encouraging text. Hey, I love you. Maybe he's leading you uh, to serve your spouse by doing one of the chores that they normally do, by you know, taking out the trash or doing the laundry or, or washing the dishes, whatever it might be, and, and then doing that on top of your normal chores. Perhaps God's leading you to view whatever difficult situation you're in right now through the lens of love rather than the lens of fairness. Whatever it may be, that's my invitation to all of us today, including myself, to love others radically. Really, biblically defined, to love others normally, but in our culture, to love others radically. Last February... Taylor and I were uh, going out to celebrate my birthday, and all of this stuff with the sickness had just happened, and I'm like on the rebound, not 100% yet, but like at that point, um, getting better. All of the emotional stuff from me messing up relationally is still kind of at the forefront, major issue, uh, causing all kinds of relational distress between Taylor and I. Um, there's all kinds, I just like, I was... I was still at the end of my rope. Let's just put it that way. We go out to eat. We pull into this parking lot. It's a gusty day. And the, the door gets yanked out of Taylor's hand and slams into the car door of the person parked next to us. And I am like, another thing. Like, I'm, I'm so done. <laughs> and... Like, it's not like a tiny little, like, oh, rub it away real quick. Like, it's like a gash in this person's car. I'm like, it's like a thousand, it's going to be a thousand dollars to fix this, I think to myself. And uh, honestly, I I was like, "Eh, maybe we shouldn't leave a note. (laughs) And, uh, but we did, don't worry, we left a note. And uh, wrote our phone number, so sorry that this happened, please give me a call and we'll figure it out. And, uh put it under their windshield wiper, go into the restaurant, and I am like so done. I'm like, Taylor, I can't even eat right now. We need to leave. And so I get up very rudely and just kind of walk out of the restaurant. Taylor's like, stop, like it's so rude. But I do it anyway. So I got up and I left and uh, we go home and we're sitting at home and Taylor's like, so you're done with your pity party? And I needed to hear that. And. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, in a way, you said it. Anyway. She used different words, but that's what she was communicating. Um, and I said, yep. And she's like, for your birthday this year, I wanted to buy you a chair, like a lounge chair. Um, and so I'm like, okay, let's go shopping. So we go to a couple of furniture stores, and the whole time I'm thinking to myself, man, I have this $600 medical bill coming. This car's going to cost us $1,000 to fix. We don't have this money to spend on a chair. Like, I'm having a miserable time thinking to myself, we have no money. 
And I remember exactly where we were when we got the text. We were sitting in the car in the parking lot. We had just come out of like the third furniture store. That stuff is expensive. And uh, <laughs> we're sitting there and uh, I get the text and I begin to read it and it's like, hey, this is so-and-so. It's the person whose car you guys hit. And uh, I just wanted to let you know, it's okay. I'm not gonna pursue you getting this fixed. I'm just, it's just, it's okay. And she goes on to say that when she was in medical school, something very similar happened to her and that person forgave her and so now she's forgiving us to pay it forward. Wow. And guys, I don't cry very often. <laughs> but for the second time, for the second time in one month, I had tears coming down my eyes because I was like so at the end of my rope and God just fixed it. And I was just so extraordinarily blessed by that act of kindness. You never know what that act of kindness will do in the life of that other person. It might just be the, the sign from God that they need or the miracle that they need that day. Earlier last week, I was talking to one of the leaders in our church who had mentioned that he was driving down the road and got rear-ended by a teenage girl. I bet she was on her cell phone. Anyway, <laughs> he got rear-ended, and uh, he got out of the car, and uh, I don't know all of the details of the story, but essentially the end of the story is that he decided to forgive her. He decided to say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And he just let her go on her merry way. How amazing is that? That is radical, Jesus-focused love. Someone in our church did that. How cool is that? As we begin to close today, my dream for us is that these kinds of stories would become everyday stories in Lakewood because of us. That our community, that our city would feel so extraordinarily loved because we decide to love them like Jesus loved us, like Ruth and Boaz loved Naomi. Radically. Even if it comes at a cost. Even if it's not fair. Radically. I mean, dream with me about the impact of that people feeling and experiencing the love of Christ. It might even turn into opportunities for us to preach the gospel. Wow, I mean, people's eternities could change because we choose to love them. Amazing. So as we pray, that's my invitation to us to, to begin to dream together about how that could look and, and to begin to practically live that out in our day-to-day -day life. Let's pray. Father, you're good. Oh, thank you for coming to our aid in our moments of distress, for being there for us, for working miracles, for, 
for providing for those bills that we didn't expect, for, for bringing uh, wholeness and healing in those really difficult, painful situations, for, for restoring us relationally with one another, for, Lord, whatever it may be, thank you that you're the God who, who desires to bring life out of death, who, who desires to bring hope out of hopelessness. Thank you that you're the God who does it. Father, we pray that we would be your hands and feet this week and every week from here on out, that we, or continue to be your hands and feet, that we would radically love and care for our friends and family and loved ones and enemies and co-workers and peers in our school, that we would be the people who do these things. We pray for a harvest that is plentiful, Lord, that there would be many people in your kingdom one day because you taught us how to love like you love. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I truly hope and, and, and believe that God can use us to change our community. That can, he, he can use his radical love through us to change our community.